Well, we have been journeying through the Bible this past year. Uh, I know church does that every year, but (laughs) we've been doing this in a particular way this past year because what we've been trying to do is to retell the greatest story ever told. And so every week we've been looking at a, at a significant swath of the scriptural story, of the Bible story. We began last September in Genesis. We'll fi- finish at the end of June in Revelation. And this morning we're going to look at the particular uh, part of the gospel story that concerns Holy Week uh, from the time after Palm Sunday and through Good Friday. That's the text that we're going to look at today. Uh, there, you'll see the specific text indicated in your bulletin. You'll see the text for next week indicated also in your bulletin, hoping that you might read those texts in advance as we come to, uh, to look at that passage of the Scripture. How, if a workmate or a family member or somebody in a social circle of yours, how, if they asked you, would you describe the story of the Bible? How would you uh, be able to, in not so long terms, describe what the Bible is all about? Well, when we began our study of the biblical storyline many months ago, it was with this picture of the beginning. It was with this picture of the great circle of life once created by God whose very character was informed by the presence of the love of God reigning, governing at the center of all things. Genesis chapter 1 teaches that for one brief shining moment, human beings enjoyed this perfect communion with God and with neighbor and with the creation itself. And life was not just passable. Life was not just survivable or okay. Life, the Bible says, was very good. Then you may recall, sin changed everything. Human beings, seduced by an illusion that they would actually be better off if they uh, were gods themselves, Uh, our ancestors chose to turn their backs on the one true God, on the commandments that he had given, and to go their own way, to to make life on their own terms. And the multiplier effect of that particular choice, the Bible suggests, produces a world of increasing pain, hardship, confusion, alienation from God, conflict with neighbors. What had once been, in other words, a life lived in the sunshine of God's eternal presence at the center, his his relational character playing itself out in everything, now increasingly becomes a life filled with the cold, dark shadows of sin, death, heartache. The rest of the Old Testament paints the story of that devolution through the lens of the history of the people of Israel. Though what is going on in the life of the, of the people of Israel is happening all over the human race. Finally, the God of the universe, the one who is the holy light of love himself, returns to the earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's been communicating himself through prophets and leaders all through the centuries, but now in a very dramatic way, he walks back into the garden, become a jungle himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And in in these stunning parables and these searing proclamations, in these remarkable acts of gracious healing and of of redeeming love and power, Jesus declares the brilliant glory of the Heavenly Father. 
He speaks of the, the, the extraordinarily beautiful character of the king of creation and of the nature of the kingdom of God into which all human beings are invited once more. But by now, sin has so blinded humanity that even the people who are most likely to get it, even the people who, who by all education and experience ought to be expected to get it, even the religious leaders of Israel will not open their hearts to him, will not recognize him, will not receive him in. And then, in the space of just a few days, the whole great story that's been, been told across the, this storyline, this entire great story of man's profound need and God's pursuing love rushes towards this climax. And in the five days following Palm Sunday, all of the shadows of the human condition reveal themselves and converge on the person of Jesus. As Luke 22 and verse 53 puts it, it is the hour when darkness reigns. And it is this tiny segment of the storyline and its massive significance for you and for me and for our planet today that I want to invite you to consider with me this morning. But before we do that, let's bow for a moment in prayer. Lord God, Lord God, we, we sometimes find it hard to hear. We find it so difficult sometimes, especially with stories we know well, to let the truth of them really in. But Lord, I pray that today, for those of us in this room, those of us listening to my voice, it will be different. That we will discover in a new way, in a fresh way, that your story is also our story. And that in the meeting of these two is not just conviction, but life and hope and our future. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we join the storyline today, Jesus has already cleared the temple of the money changers on Monday. Those people that had taken the house of God and turned it into a marketplace were ripping off the poor pilgrims that were coming to offer their sacrifices. He's cleaned it out. Jesus has given his great Olivet Discourse, this, um, this visioning of the future in which he's describing what is to come and has told his disciples that they can expect hardship, that following after him is not going to be a cakewalk, that there will be persecutions and trials and discipline required, but it's worth it, Jesus tells them, because the victory of the kingdom of God is something not to be missed. Now, on Tuesday, Jesus is moving towards the cross. Now on Tuesday, Jesus is just two days before the Passover feast, that time when all of Israel will gather in Jerusalem to recall how God once upon a time delivered them from bondage in Egypt through the sacrifice of a spotless lamb and through the blood, the shed blood of Pharaoh's son, the king of Egypt's son. 
Nobody, however, yet gets that this ancient ritual, this, this holiday that had been celebrated year after year after year for century upon century, all along had just been prefiguring, just been foreshadowing the far more significant sacrifice of another kind of lamb, of another king's son, who would accomplish a liberation on a vastly larger and more significant scale. It's here on Tuesday that the first of the great shadows that will take Jesus to the cross is becoming darkly visible. And the first of those shadows is the shadow of envy. The chief priests and the teachers of the law want the allegiance of the people, but Jesus is now winning it. The leaders of Israel want to define who God is and what God expects of people, but Jesus has now assumed this authority unto himself. In the, in the face of this, the leaders of Israel have felt an envy that has now become a jealous hatred, and they are now conspiring to do away with Jesus once and for all. On Tuesday evening, Jesus dines in the home of Simon the leper out in the village of Bethany just outside of Jerusalem when a woman comes into the house and she has in her hands this uh, alabaster jar, this stone jar that's filled with this very expensive and precious perfume, this oil, and she breaks the jar and she anoints Jesus' hair and, 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 uh, with this oil and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears for she knows what's coming. She knows what's coming. She feels in her soul this absolute devotion to Jesus. And Jesus looks upon this woman's act as, a, as a such significance, such an act of devotion and compassion for him that he says that wherever, wherever the story is told, it will be done in remembrance of her as once again we've told the story. Fulfilling Christ's promise. And Jesus understands that this anointing she's giving him is preparing him for burial. The burial that he knows will come sooner than anybody around him understands. But the disciples see this act of this woman and they respond in indignant self-righteousness. They explain how it's obvious that this expensive perfume should have been sold and used for the poor. And Jesus sees right through them. He sees that their comments are really the shadow of deceit, of a self-righteous piety, of a false piety. They've never shown much concern for the poor, these disciples. In fact, when the poor were gathered around and were hungry, their first instinct was send them away instead of meet their need. And I shudder to recognize myself in that. I shudder to recognize how often with my words I speak of a righteous desire and of righteous commitments, of righteous values, and how in my actions so often I betray myself. I betray the deceit of my self-righteous kind of piety. It was likely Judas who spoke first on that evening about how money ought to get spent. He would have spoken dignantly about this because as the Gospels record in numerous places, Judas was into money. In fact, we know that he was actually purloining, stealing from the common purse that the disciples kept. Like other members of the zealot party, Judas had seen Jesus as something of a gravy train. 
He believed that Jesus was going to help overthrow the Romans. That's what the zealots were looking for. It was their main agenda. And Jesus was, going, was a tool of that concern. As still sometimes, Jesus, religion, Christianity becomes a tool of political partisanship. Judas was determined to see Jesus usher him into a new era of prosperity and power, but now Jesus was talking about dying. Jesus was talking about surrendering himself. How in the world was this going to make anybody rich? Judas would have thought. So for Judas, the shadow of greed, which has always been there, now darkens considerably and takes him over completely. And we see him going off to the chief priests and striking up this deal with them to turn Jesus over to them at an opportune moment for 30 pieces of silver. With the die now cast, the story begins to pick up speed. Jesus gives his disciples instructions to go into the city of Jerusalem to a certain place in the city and to ask the person that lived there if they could borrow the room that he keeps upstairs to celebrate the Passover feast in. The disciples go and they find the room and the man just as Jesus had said. And Christ gives them in that uh, evening an absolutely luminous lesson on the humility of love. Jesus who is purity in himself, Jesus who is the king himself, does what not even the lower members of families thought to do. Jesus takes off of his robe and he wraps a towel around his waist and he stoops down and he washes the dirty, cruddy, toe-jammed, stinking feet of people that spent three years walking around in sandals with him, hardly having a bath. And he washes their feet, even Judas's feet. And then he says to them, this is how you're supposed to love. As, as I've loved you here, go do this. You know, for each other. You know, just don't make nice. Get down. Get down there. Back down in there where it's really cruddy in people's lives and all of our lives and minister to people there. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then Jesus, Jesus goes on, tells them not to be afraid of the troubles that are coming. That he's the way, he's the truth, he is the life, and he's prepared a way for them to follow him, not just through this life's journey, but all the way out into Eternity into the mansions of heaven, the Father's heaven themselves. And, th and then Jesus declares that he's going to send his Holy Spirit upon them. That it's going to guide them in his way. It's going to empower them for the ministry he's going to give them in the world. And then Jesus takes the bread of the Passover feast. And he lifts up the, the cup of redemption that's part of the Passover celebration. And he suddenly transforms the Jewish Passover feast into a sacrament of the kingdom of God as he makes it clear that even the Passover always had only been pointing towards this moment, towards this time. Always the Passover had been pointing 
towards that costly but redeeming love that would shortly be fully revealed upon the cross. The necessity of that cross then gets confirmed in the cascade of shadows that now fall with increasing speed and darkness upon the people around Jesus and Jesus himself. Jesus predicts that his disciples will all fall away as the pressure on them mounts. He looks around at his his congregation, his disciples, and he says, not one of you is going to escape this one. You're all going to blow it. Every one of you is going to fail me when the pressure mounts. And we know we do. We know we do when the pressure's on, when there's risk to ourselves, when there's cost to be paid. We know how often we do Abandon him. (laughs) But Peter, Peter always aspiring, (laughs) evidences the profound shadow of pride that was Peter's principal issue in life. And he shouts out, not me, Lord. All these other people, they may fail you. Those folks over in the choir, they may drop the ball. Not me. Not me. I'll stick with you, Lord, through thick and thin, right to the end. Even if I have to die myself. And then we watch as Jesus goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for strength to face the cross, asking only one thing of his disciples just stay awake. Just try not to nod off. But again and again, over the course of the night, the shadow of sloth falls over the disciples and they just can't seem to rise. Even to Christ's simple, heartfelt request. Suddenly Judas arrives. Suddenly the quiet, interrupted perhaps only by the snoring of the disciples, is interrupted more fully by by the sound of tromping boots as an armed guard suddenly arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas kisses Jesus's Uh, cheek identifying him as the rabbi as the one that they're out after and suddenly all these people who'd claimed that they would be with Jesus to the very end are overtaken by the shadow of self-protecting fear and with one quick swipe of 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 a sword blade by Peter that's about all of the courage they can muster and they go running pell mell out of the garden in fact one of them is grabbed from behind by one of the guards and he literally pulls himself out of his clothes and runs naked from the place. Jesus gets hauled into, before the Jewish ruling council in chains. He gets tried by Annas and Caiaphas. He is the high rulers of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. They display the shadow of self-righteous wrath in all of its Darkness. Ironically, they condemn him for blasphemy against God. How ironic is that? Who's blaspheming? Who's God in that moment? We then watch as the shadow of denial falls over Peter, who for all of the previous claims to loyalty now disavows even knowing Jesus three separate times. And we see the darkness of bitter despair so overtake Judas that he goes out and hangs himself in remorse for what he has done. Sometimes it can get so dark, we can become so conscious of all the things 
we've failed at, all of the bitter, awful, horrible, shameful things we've done. Some people sitting in this room right now are aware of things they have done over which they feel such shame that we're laden with a despair that makes it hard to believe that forgiveness is still possible. But it's still possible. It's possible through what Christ is doing here. Because only Rome can execute a death sentence legally, the Jewish leaders drag Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. And although Pilate gets warned by his wife, she's had this dream about Jesus, and she knows that he's a holy man not to be messed with, Pilate, in spite of the warning of his wife, trifles with Jesus anyway. We see the shadow of stubborn ignorance in Pilate here. And we see the same shadow over the crowd a little bit later as they demand for the release of the murderer Barabbas instead of the preservation of the one who is actually their savior. They choose trash or they treasure the trash instead of and, and, and they trash the treasure that they have in Jesus. Seeing a possible way out of further conflict, Pilate decides to send Jesus to King Herod. And there we see the shadow of gluttony in its glory. Herod is a man who lives for the novel thing, for the new, the entertaining, the titillating thing. Herod stands in the presence of the king above all kings, yet his only interest is in whether or not Jesus can perform a miracle for him. You know, that idea immortalized in Jesus Christ Superstar. Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. That's all you need do, and I know it's all true. Come on, you king of the Jews. Herod gluttonous for the God that will entertain him. From there, the storyline moves on. And back to Pilate, Jesus is sent again, who this time demonstrates this colossally blind arrogance in the face of Christ. Don't you realize I can have you killed, says Pilate? Don't you know who I am? How ironic again. Doesn't he know who Jesus is? And what Christ could have done to him with but a thought? And in the end, it's the shadow of apathy that darkens Pilate most as he orders a bowl to be brought in so that he can wash his hands of responsibility for Jesus. From there, the storyline moves into the final hours of darkness. We see the Roman soldiers displaying the terrible shadow of cruelty that too often darkens the lives of people with absolute power. We see their brazen manipulation of a man in the crowd named Simon of Cyrene, forcing him to help them in their parade of death. As they torture Jesus, literally torture him, rip flesh from his body and drive a crown of thorns into his head and beat him onward up the hill. 
We watch as the soldiers strip Jesus and pound nails into his flesh and then raise him up on a cross to die. And in a last callous act of amazing material lust, these men who have taken everything else from Jesus now just gamble over the last of his clothes just to see how they can take that last thing from him. Finally, we watch the shadow of cynicism as it blackens the heart of the crowd who had cheered him days before. Now, jeering him, mocking him, defying him, daring him to come down from that cross. And we hear one of the thieves on the cross next to Jesus taunting the carpenter and in words of supremely blind vanity demanding that Jesus save him as if it's the job of any true Messiah to bail us out when we get into trouble whether we're repentant of it or not. And I recognize myself in that guy. God, I've messed up. I've gotten myself in trouble. Get me out of this. I can't promise I'm really going to change. Bail me out anyway. Aren't you God? To put it bluntly, almost every shadow of the sin that darkens the human heart all the deadly sins, and lots more besides. All of the shadows that still cast their pall across the shadowlands of life today display themselves in these last hours of Holy Week. All of the envy, greed, and gluttony that drives human beings to serve self above God and others. And I'm guilty of it. All of the cruelty, manipulation, wrath, and lust with which we too often treat the people closest to us. We're guilty of it. All of the pride and the arrogance and the ignorance that goes into justifying and rationalizing those behaviors. All of the sloth and the apathy and the denial with which we refuse responsibility for changing. Or making things better. All of the vanity and the cynicism and the despair that marks so much of human life. All of these shadows reveal themselves in the last hours of Holy Week. And they converge in one place upon the beating heart of Jesus himself on that cross. Thus the Bible records that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That's from noon until three. Darkness came over all the land. It was the hour when darkness reigned. As Jesus drew upon himself, took upon himself, sucked into himself all of the sin and the death of the world, absorbing it in himself, paying for it in himself, destroying its power, to finally separate human beings from God in himself. And as Jesus cries out, it is finished. And into thy hands I commit my spirit, Father. He breathes his last, the scriptures say. And the Bible says that at that very moment, 
the earth shook and rocks split and the huge veil in the great temple at Jerusalem, this massive tapestry, inches thick, that hung from the ceiling and separated the place where the unholy people came to worship and the holy of holy place where God's presence was believed to dwell, this great separating curtain was torn in two, the Scriptures say, opening up a way symbolically, seriously, figuratively, and truly opening up a way for any human being, no matter how deep the sin, no matter what the past, no matter how dark the shadows, to walk through the opening, into the arms of God once again. To go back, in a sense, to Eden. To go back to the beginning and to find the communion for which human beings were originally made. Do you realize this is your story? Do you realize that he did all of this for you, for me, to open a way into the light for we who live in the shadow lands? The scriptures go on to say that the body was taken down from the cross. And as evening fell, a disciple of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea procured the body. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He laid it in his own new tomb in a garden nearby. And rolling a big stone in front of the entrance to that tomb, Joseph went away. But at the behest of the Jewish leaders, who feared that the disciples might try and come to steal the body of Jesus and proclaim him resurrected, Pilate orders that the tomb be sealed officially and that a guard be appointed to guard the tomb who, as tradition would have it, would hold that place, bar anybody from getting by upon pain of their own death. But there in the depths of that tomb, there where the hour of darkness seemed to reign completely and absolutely. The most important chapter of the storyline was just about to begin. But that's a story for another day, the one to which we'll return when we gather next week. Please pray with me. O God, our Heavenly Father, centuries have come and gone since the events that we have remembered today. The cross has become for many just an icon on a wall, just a piece of jewelry to be worn, just a symbol of an institution often hated, mocked, or dismissed. But it was there on that cross It was there on that hill that your precious son died in love for each one of us. It was the shadow of my sin, Father, of our sin, of this world's sin that fell upon Jesus. It was upon that one pure heart that you laid the iniquity of us all 
and it was by his stripes and scars that you unleashed the mysterious power of divine forgiveness that can heal us all. Oh God, how this troubled world of ours still needs to find redemption in your arms. Give us fresh eyes to see the particular shadows in our heart that required Christ's cross. Receive our humble confession of our sin. Strengthen our resolve, Lord, to repent of our dark ways and to start walking in the light of your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. And God's people said,